Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 19th year. As Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell. When Indianapolis was founded in 1821, four of the city's earliest citizens selected a public burial ground site just off Kentucky Avenue along the White River. Several additions were made until the cemetery shuttered in the late 1800s. Historians say historic maps do not show the colored section, but records from the time made it clear that the city's cemetery was segregated. Over several decades, the cemetery became full. Development of rail lines encroached on the area and slaughterhouses were constructed nearby. Families with means to do so began relocating their loved ones to places like Crown Hill. By the turn of the century, Green Lawn had been condemned by the city and turned into a park, although an undesirable one. In the 1910s and 1920s, thousands of bodies were exhumed from Green Lawn and moved to other cemeteries. Diamond Chain bought a portion of the site in 1913 for his manufacturing facility, and remains have been discovered there over the years. That portion of the property is now being turned into Eleven Park, the massive mixed-use development that will include Indy's Eleven, new 20,000-seat soccer stadium, and historians expect more remains will be uncovered during the construction. Eunice Trotter, director of the Indiana Landmarks Black Heritage Preservation Program, said that they found death records for a decade of the late 1800s showing hundreds of Black residents were buried in Green Lawn. City officials say their plan is to disturb as little of the site as possible. They've hired an archaeologist to examine the ground as construction progresses and look for signs of burials. If remains are found, work in the area will stop and everything will be documented and processed according to the city. The city is putting together a commission or at this point has put together a commission to make recommendations for how best to memorialize the history of Green Lawn once the bridge project is complete. Against this backdrop, we want to get more clarity on the issues, so we have invited Leon Bates, local Indianapolis historian and former guest of Bring It On, and Judith Thomas, Deputy Mayor of Neighborhood Engagement for the City of Indianapolis. Leon and Judith, welcome to Bring It On. We're so glad to hear you, and this topic is hot. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're glad to be here with you to discuss. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. I, I hope in, in the introduction, we got everything accurate. And if there needs to be a little bit of clarification from the very beginning, please feel free, uh, Judith, to chime in right now and, and let us know if perhaps we didn't get some aspects of that totally correct. No, I, I think you were good. And I'm going to be honest, Leon's the technical guy. He knows the history of this year by year, month by month, you know, uh, but no, it, I, I think you, you, you got it right where we're moving toward. All right. Okay. And uh, with that, thank you again, Judith. Uh, you survived. The All-Star Weekend, um, and of course the game is later on as of this recording, but uh, how does it feel to have put together a successful uh, tourism experience for the city of Indianapolis? 
Well, as always with the city of Indianapolis, a lot of people come together and come to the table to produce these massive events. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're known for that. It's funny. I was in a documentary, a young man, um, uh, Juwan Nelson created a documentary about the 1985 and the people that were involved or maybe, uh, you know, knew about it, comparing it to the uh, 2024 and how far the city's come. And in 85, we were at a tipping point of where, what direction we were going. And then all of a sudden we started, you know, um, uh, uh, hosting games like the National Sports Festival and Pan Am Games, which led to so many other events coming in, being very intentional about attracting large uh, sporting activities and now large conventions. And so now we're, hey, we're, we're looking to the future, came together to get this done and uh, added arts and culture to it and just took mm-hmm. it to another level. Now, oh, on that note, uh, along with the athletic experiences, you know, Indy 500 and other things, you have now the Indy 11, which uh, has been making waves, which has outgrown its current place. And now is their eyes are on this area of question. Um, but yet, remains are found. And Leon, if you could pick it up there as far as what you feel the issues are as we begin now to delve into this this greater conversation. Um, like you said, remains have been found and that was expected by many of us a long time ago that remains would be found. And they are. And uh, at this point, to my knowledge, every time that someone has been found, they have stopped, contacted the state and went through the proper procedures to try and deal with that person, to get them re- recovered or removed from the from the site. And they, at some point, are, is planned for them to be reburied somewhere, and that has not been determined yet. Um, but it's a 25-acre site, and at, as you said earlier, it was um, declared or decided at one time it was full. And modern standards say you can bury 1,000 people per acre, or excuse me, 800 to 1,200 people per acre. So if we just use simple math of 1,000 per acre times 25 acres, that's 25,000 people. But we only have documented records for the removal of around less than 10,000 people. That's not saying that another 12, 15,000 are there. We don't know that. We just know that everyone was not removed. And that's been the big question is how many and who they were and where they removed to, we just do not know. So we expect to find more before it's done. Mm-hmm. But let's let's uh, make it clear, though, that right now, you know, the city is working on the Henry Street Bridge project mm-hmm. and the Indy 11 project is private. So where we've right. been working from a city perspective is uh, working with our community engagement team so that when we are uh, uh, building this state mandated building that, or bridge that has to be there as a result of infrastructure, that you know we're we're listening to everyone and taking the steps that need to be done to be respectful, uh, uh, but also uh, community engaged. Yeah. With that said, um, had it not been for Judith and a couple other people, we wouldn't be having this community engagement. This thing really took off in a hurry and went sideways in a hurry. And it was, I was at that meeting where Judith stood up and actually stopped the meeting and everyone come back to their chairs and sit down and start trying to talk through this. And she's been working at this ever since, uh, trying to get, bring people to the table to talk about, to understand what we're talking about, what the issue is and how we address it. Because there was a lot of confusion in the city. There's still a lot of confusion in the mm-hmm, city. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, well, Leon's too kind for that. Uh, but it, it was interesting being in a position as deputy mayor. And I was we were at that meeting uh, last May, I believe it was. Yeah. And we broke went into breakout breakout sessions and people, the community folks were like, well, they don't want us up on the stage and they don't want us talking about asking certain questions. And I'm standing behind there listening to people. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm they. I'm actually they. So they is not trying to do anything. We just wanted to have some good conversations. So I decided to bring everybody up because I kept hearing that. And and that's the one thing that I love working for the city is that I know how hard people are working to get things done, but we're all human. And sometimes that assumption or lack of communication or putting the dots together sometimes can really look like a huge failure. But most of the time, people are really working to make sure that we're communicating and, and what we're trying to do in this administration is listen, which is why I felt like we needed to get get everyone on the same page. And now we have this community engagement team that we have people that represent uh, the African-American genealogical uh, community, which okay. is going to give us so much information. Just looking at the AME Church's historical records and the people that were buried at Green Lawn is fascinating uh, because it, we're going to be able to tell stories that we have not told before, that we have not talked about and those first black folks and just people in general that came to Indianapolis and that we're going to be able to dig deep through historical uh, uh, documents to find out who these folks were, their struggles and what they were about. And we haven't been talking about them. And that's what gets me excited about this particular project. But we still are trying to do the right things and listen to the community. You know, if I can um, tag onto that, what Judith is it referring to is the stories like, Cheney Lively, who was the first African-American woman, let me back up, the first African-American resident that we know of in this city. Mm -hmm. She becomes the first African-American property owner in Indianapolis and by default, Marion County. Um, She's many first in this city, but most people barely know her name. If they know it at all, you know, to find out that she comes to this city when it's nothing more than a collection of log cabins scattered in the woods, and probably spent the first few months of her time here living in a tent or the back of a wagon while they built a cabin for her and Alexander Ralston to live in. Uh, John John uh, Tucker, who we talked about that marker a minute ago that was installed on Washington Street, was lynched in Indianapolis in 1845. Um, he's buried there. Lively's buried there. There are several members of the 28th USCT, United States Colored Troops, that are buried there at Green Line. When we say buried there, there's no record documenting these people have ever been moved. So they are still there to the best of our knowledge. That is the kind of thing we're talking about. And make no mistake about it, it's not just a black cemetery. There are people buried there who are uh, Jewish descent, Middle Eastern descent, French, British, German, Irish, you name it, that are all potentially still there. It's just that we know by this, by, by a small set of documents that there was a segregated African-American section that was not moved. And that kind of became the spark that started much of this conversation. And much of the backlash is too strong a word, but there was a lot of people now that are asking about this because it's now becoming more public that this happened. And most people had not thought in Indianapolis, there's not a black cemetery. Mm-hmm. So if there's mm-hmm. not a black cemetery and we know there were black pioneers, where are they buried? They're buried at Greenlawn. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And now people are starting to ask those questions. It's not a lot of people, but it's a few. It's a growing number. And, and, and the challenge, and, and I'll, I'll let you guys ask some more questions, but the challenge with that, too, is that when we say they were buried there, that's land that has been disturbed over the last hundred some odd years, right, Leon? And oh, so that, yeah. that, that's what gives us a big, you know, when people are imagining this this former cemetery, they're imagining everybody lined up and being able to find the uh, headstones. That is not the case at all. No, no, no. There were no rules back when this cemetery started in 1821. And it's actually, it's four separate cemeteries. And where they have been finding remains here recently has been up in the northeast section of the larger Greenlawn Cemetery, which was known as Peck Cemetery or the uh, Peck Track. It's also known as the Northbury Ground. Um, they have found multiple sets of remains there. And in some cases, we believe those remains, as Judith just said, have been disturbed at least three times. Mm. In other words, they dug the original grave and the person was laid to rest. Then they dug over, they dug it up again when they did the removal in approximately 1911. Then around 1917, Diamond Chain Building is built and they dig it up again. And now they're digging it up the third time with removing the Diamond Chain Building. So some of these people have been dug up or disturbed or however you want to look at it those graves have been disturbed or at least um, close to disturbance at least three times now. And we don't know still how many are there. Well, I was wondering uh, either Judith or Leon, how was the cemetery condemned? It was a process of elimination, if you will. Um, the original burial ground, if you look at that cemetery and you just kind of vision a uh, rectangle, that's divided into approximately four equal portions. The one on the lower left or the southwest corner is known as the berry ground or original berry ground. That was four acres set aside by the state of Indiana in 1821. And then the other three cemeteries come along after that. And that original berry ground, uh, there were no rules, there's no laws. Uh, if you wanted to bury someone there, you just got a shovel and went and dug a grave and buried them. The other three graveyards or cemeteries were private concerns and there were rules and there was paperwork. It's not as good as we have today, but there were there was there were some rules and some documentation. Mm -hmm. um, there was never any documentation for the first one. It was a public burial ground. And like I said, anybody could be buried there. And it didn't matter when it started, whether you were black or white. Only later did it become a racialized burying ground or cemetery. And that really starts to be hardened in 1835 when the new burial ground, which is the lower right-hand corner or the southeast corner of that cemetery section, came into use. And once that happens, it's not done by law, it's done by economics. In other words, Indiana didn't have a law that said you had to be racially segregated. But since it's a private cemetery, you can only be buried there if you can afford the cost. And most African-Americans could not afford the cost or didn't spend the money to buy a grave there when they could get one for free right next door. Yeah. And the only difference was a fence between the two of them. So many of the African-Americans for decades go on to bury in the old burial ground. And there are other newspaper accounts and even some old city council records 
that refer to the old berry ground or the colored section of the old berry ground. So we know approximately it's inside that four acre right. um, section. We don't know exactly where it is, but we know it's there. There are too many records that talk about yeah. that cemetery. Oh. It's in at least four, I think, historical accounts of the city, numerous newspapers and dozens of uh, city council records. And then we also have, you know, the erosion of the White River and the mm -hmm. banks uh, that are in that area. You know, the floods we had in 1847, um, mm -hmm. it, it just so many things naturally that took place. But then again, also what, you know, the, the paving over or the rebuilding over that at times. Um, and I mean, we're just paying for the sins of our fathers that, you know, a hundred years ago, didn't do some of the things that could have been done. And now so many other things have, have come into play over the past hundred years. Right. Well, how was it made into a, a park and did it have playground equipment and all that? That just really got me. How do you play on, on bodies? When that first started in the 1890s, um, that was following on the parks movement that was going through the, all of the United States, building parks, green space, outdoor space for public. Playground mm -hmm. equipment was not a part of it, but still, it was a place where people came outside and could sit and enjoy the outdoors. And that also ties into our what we call greenways in this city or, or trails that lead from park to park, like along um, Brookside Park, along Fall Creek, along White River. That's all a part of that parks uh, movement in the late 19th century. So with that said, someone got the idea to turn Greenlawn Cemetery into a park. And that is where some of that dispute came in 1911 with the Peck section where when Edwin Peck created that cemetery and designated the cemetery, he put a caveat into the paperwork that said, if the city of Indianapolis used that land for anything other than a cemetery, then the heirs were to get it back. And his heirs sued the city of Indianapolis and won in court and they had to give the land back. And then Peck's heirs paid to have all of the burials and I use air quotes and I say all of the burials moved to Crown Hill Cemetery. And that's around 1911 when that happens. Then after that, um, that particular park uh, project failed. A baseball park was built on top mm -hmm. of the southern section, which have been mostly the um, the Newberry Ground, 1835 section, uh, just to the east of the old Berry Ground. And that lasted about three years, I think. And then that baseball um, team moved to Baltimore. And not long after that, the whole baseball league collapsed. And that was the end of it. Um, also in the records, there at one time was a proposal to build a pest house on top of that cemetery. A pest house is a euphemism for a uh, hospital for the incurables. So in other words, like most of us have heard about uh, leprosy in the Bible, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. tuberculosis is another, where these diseases, people had them for many years before they died, and they were contagious. So you were set aside, you know, in a leper colony, if you will, or a pest house. Most of the people in the pest house had TB, but there were other diseases. Um, that didn't happen either, but that was proposed to build a pest house mm -hmm. on that cemetery. Um that, I think that's one of the reasons it was easier for Diamond Chain to purchase it. And, and they purchased the Peck section first and then bought the other three later. 
because there would have been so many plans to try and do things with it. It had set vacant. The city of Indianapolis eventually ended up with the old Berry Ground, the original first section. And Indianapolis in the 1890s didn't want it. They were complaining about how much it cost to keep it up and to, you know, cut down the trees and, and weeds and bushes and so on and so forth. And that was an expense to the city that they did not want to incur. So when they found a chance to sell it, they did. Mm -hmm. um, it, it It's kind of hard to get your head around, but it repeatedly goes through these cycles of development, redevelopment, you know, new ideas. And at one point when Crown Hill opens in 1863, this is, I think was the point of when everybody starts to really give up on Green Lawn. That opens up, and then right shortly after that, they create the trolley system that actually ran out to the front, the 34th Street side of Crown Hill. People started to bury at Crown Hill. It was seen as a much more inviting place, a much more tranquil place, and slowly people gave up on Green Lawn, and that's 1863. So then by the time you get to 1890, when the city is trying to get rid of the original burial ground, they have very few burials there. Um, there are still some going on, but not many. And then in 1902, we have the grave robbing scandal that becomes the coup de grace. The city of Indianapolis orders that the cemetery be closed, no more burials, remove the burial vaults. All those kind of things happen in 1902. And then by the time you get to uh, 1911, when they're feuding over the Peck section, and in 1924, the Indianapolis Traction Railroad Company, which is a basically an interurban, like a trolley system that goes from city to city. They actually purchase the old Berry Ground and, and the uh, the uh, new Berry Ground and build a warehouse on it. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, railroad tracks and warehouse and all this that's built on top of it that stays there for almost another 50 years before Diamond Chain acquires it and tears down the warehouse and just kind of paves it over. And then, over the decades, Diamond Chain would expand and, and do maintenance and things like this. And they would turn up, you know, one or two, sometimes three graves as they worked. And then they would be relocated. Um, there are buildings that are to the south of what's now uh, the 25-acre cemetery. And they are going to be south of the New Henry Street that Judith just referenced. That there are people that remain south of the project where the city's going to work that these buildings were built on top of in the 1990s uh, when the last one was found back there I think in 2010 mm. so they have never all been properly excavated and removed and that remains the challenge as Judas said a few minutes ago now we are paying for the sins of our fathers I think many of them knew at the time but they didn't care or it's like let's just get this done before somebody finds out and now we are facing what they did I want to jump in uh, real quick. It's time to sort of ID our, our program. For those who've just joined us, we are having a conversation with Leon Bates, a local Indianapolis historian, and Judith Thomas, Deputy Mayor of Neighborhood Engagement for the City of Indianapolis. They are shedding light upon the City of Indianapolis's development and preservation plans on the site of the old segregated Green Lawn Cemetery, where according to city death records, there are scores of human remains, a significant number of them are African-American. And uh, you mentioned something, Leon, that made my ears perk up. You said the great grave robbery. 
Yes. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking now I knew in England they did that type of thing for medical schools. Mm-hmm. Is this what was going on? Yes, it happened all across the United States, including Indianapolis. And for a number of years, there were three or four local medical schools in Indianapolis. This is before the IU School of Medicine. Mm-hmm. These were what you might consider be subscription schools. If you went and you had the cost of admission, you could get admitted to this medical school and get your medical degree. Well, they were doing the same as much we do today that when you get to at some point in the medical school training, um, you do basically a dissection of a human cadaver so you can see what the structures of the human body look like before you try to become a doctor and work on a live patient. But at the time, the students were responsible for acquiring the cadavers or often the medical school. And the medical school here in Indianapolis, one of them was accused of actually purchasing cadavers from grave robbers. These people would go out. If you had your funeral today, tonight or tomorrow, they'd come out to the cemetery and dig you back up. Mm-hmm. And they would sell you to the medical school. They would dig you up, cover the grave back up. And if a person wasn't really aware, they would not know that you were missing. One of the more um, notables is Benjamin Harrison's father. They thought that may have happened to him that someone had robbed the grave and they found out that he hadn't not been moved, but Harrison's family had concrete poured on top of it, his grave. Once they dug up to make sure he was still in it, uh, they poured concrete on top to stop anybody from doing that. But it was a serious problem. Hmm. And there was a trial in 1902, 1902, 1903 of many of the men involved in this. And several went to prison. The doctor who was accused of, Purchasing the uh, cadavers was later put on trial. He was found not guilty and went on his way, but the other people went to prison. But this also sparked in Indiana the anatomical law, which made it illegal for the medical schools to purchase cadavers. And it made it illegal for you to try and provide a cadaver to someone without the proper authorizations and this kind of thing. So the state of Indiana becomes basically the middleman where anyone who dies and wants to donate their body to science, they come through the state. Or if you die in the custody of the state or a local jurisdiction. In other words, if you die in prison or in a county jail, in a poorhouse, a work farm, mental hospital, whatever, and your family does not claim your remains in a given amount of time, then the body is turned over automatically to the state of Indiana to be sent to a medical school. And that comes out of that. And unfortunately, Greenlawn Cemetery is one of the ones that we know was uh, was was victimized like that. Um, there were many cemeteries around central Indiana going to the surrounding counties. And there were there were more there were many groups that were doing this, not just one or two in Indianapolis in the surrounding counties as well that were doing this on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Liz? Well, Judith, I'd like to know, what does the city mean when it says they're going to disturb as little of the site as possible? Explain that. How do you disturb a little bit? I think from a technical standpoint, again, we haven't really started working just yet, uh, you know, making plans. And that's why, you know, having the community uh, engagement uh, group 
was good because we talked about, we had experts at the table that could say, okay, don't use this tool, use a different tool that won't come in stronger. You know, the, like, for instance, we changed and, and Leon jump in on some of the technicalities on this, on some of the tools that would have been a little more disturbing to the land as we dig, we went into a finer tool, one that would actually be a little bit more delicate so that if we do uh, uh, run into remains, we're able to preserve it as much as possible. Again, like Leon said, all work will stop. Uh, we have archaeologists on site uh, that will be able to take uh, what we find uh, to a lab, do some uh, basic testing, and then as we decide, you know, realize how many uh, remains are found, then we can start making plans on where those remains will uh, be reburied and how we will also honor those folks. But as far as as, as little as possible, talking with everyone from the utilities companies uh, to the people that are working in the construction, knowing that this is not going to be your typical uh, a construction site where we're going to have to be very aware and intentional about what we are doing. And uh, as opposed to bulldozing, I mean, just that's a visual. If you can, <laughs> it's probably not a very delicate uh, way to say it, but you know, you're going to be working a lot differently on this project than you would on others. Yeah. What she's said, describing. Yeah. Go ahead. Actually, what, what she's describing is the way that you excavate and yeah. typically the bucket that you excavate with, if you just think about the, the backhoes that you've seen, they have mm -hmm. a large bucket. That bucket has teeth on it. Well, the bucket that's going to be used on that project will be a smooth bucket. And rather than dig down and dig as much out as they can with each individual pass of the bucket, they're only going to dig down three or four inches at a time. So they're going to be more scraping it off. And the the uh, archaeologists are there to look for changes in soil color and soil texture, which tell them that they may be getting close to a burial. And if they do find one, then to stop and use hand tools to excavate down to get to the person and then get that person out with as little damage and destruction as possible and then allow construction to continue on. Um, but it is a time-consuming process to do that, which is one of the reasons people don't want to do it. It takes a lot more time to dig that slowly and that carefully and then to stop and remove that person. Because you have to understand that even those who were buried in coffins, the wooden coffin is going to be gone. They'll be deteriorated. Um, mm -hmm. Cast iron coffins will last, but if you hit it with a bucket and you're digging like you would in any other normal practice, that cast iron coffin can be uh, destroyed. Mm -hmm. And they won't know that they've hit it and destroyed it until after they pulled it out of the ground. And then it's, uh-oh, we just hit something, but they've done major damage to it. So what Judith is describing is trying to excavate without the destruction that comes with with digging is is okay. there is there ground um okay ground penetrating radar that is used or how effective is that technology uh, that technology is effective one of the problems you run into with it especially in areas that have been dug up more than once mm -hmm. is that it won't give you the kind of good reading that you would get if you went to a cemetery that's only been you know, dug up where they put the remains in and covered up and then never disturbed again, you can clearly see, you know, that kind of, of pattern. But when you go to a place that's been dug up multiple times, um, it's not as reliable. There's also ground resistive testing they can do. There's, a, like I said, you look for, for traces in the soil as you're digging. So there are ways to do it, but all of them take time. None of them are perfect. And in a case of where we know that it was a cemetery, it's like, we know we need to, as Judith said, slow down and be careful. 
Right. Because we know it, that's what it was. And we know they have found remains in the past. And we know it's been dug up more than once, which means that even if we do all the things we're talking about, ground penetrating radar and all that, it's not going to be as reliable had it not been repeatedly disturbed. One, one follow-up to that. Um, earlier in our conversation, it was it was mentioned by you, Leon, that uh, you're fortunate that Judith really bore all this on her shoulders. And one of, I guess perhaps a heated encounter with residents and with the city administration and, and at the proverbial timeout, everybody go to your separate corners for a moment. <laughs> and so, so, I mean, because I, I can, you know, we hear of environmental racism all around the country. We hear of insensitivities by urban settings. You know, we, we see freeways going through old black neighborhoods. We see all that happening. Um, I, I hear and, and Liana, I heard you affirming some things that Judith is saying is that Indianapolis has been sensitive to what's going on. And unlike other communities around the country, uh, perhaps they're setting a new bar in how you approach sensitive matters like this. Can you cite other communities where it was a disaster or other community? I know Oklahoma has gone through living hell because of uh, the pits they dug after they bombed black communities. And now we'll never know the true numbers. Um, and, you know, are there other communities where such a uh, um, such a method of, of forward progress has worked? Can you cite any? Yeah. Um, the African burial ground in uh, southern Manhattan, down near Battery Park, there is mm -hmm. a uh, federal government office building managed by GSA. When they were trying to put that building up, they discovered this burial ground that was not on the maps, but people suspected it was in the area. Well, they found it. I think there are 400 plus burials there. Mm -hmm. The federal government stopped the excavation and tried to figure out what they had gotten into. And then this is where the archaeologists and anthropologists come involved. And they started to identify things, material things that were buried with these people that gave them an idea of when they were buried and where they came from. And they figured out that it was an African burial ground. Hmm. It is now a U.S. park. It's only one acre. So it's one of the smallest U.S. parks in the country. And they get, I don't know, somewhere north of 60,000, 70,000 people a year that actually come to visit it. And it's now that one acre site. It has signage in it. And in the building, there is a small visitor center you can go into that explains, you know, what this park is and why it's there and, and all of those kind of things. And they're walking past it. You can walk through it and read the different signages. So that's probably one of the more successful sites in the country. Mm -hmm. There are those that have been dug up and destroyed or built, built on top of. I can't remember the city, but there is a city in Florida right now that they mm -hmm. have realized the elementary school was built on top of part of a cemetery. And now that they have actually gone in and done, like you talked about, ground penetrating radar and other investigative processes, they kind of outline where they believe the cemetery is. Part of it's under the building. The rest of it's under the schoolyard and, and uh, parking lot. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with it. Um, recently, there was one in, or actually two, in the Washington, D.C. area that these African-American burial grounds, this shows you how government works. They were not on any map. So when they drew out the plan for the new walking and bike trail in the Georgetown area, this trail went across the back end of these two cemeteries and as they're building it this lady who lived in the area that actually knew this history 
asked the construction workers what they were doing. And she said, you realize you're building on top of a cemetery? And one of them told her, there's no cemetery here. And she said, yes, there is. And then he said, no, it's not on the map. She went through all the trouble of contacting the National Park Service and persisted and got someone to talk to her who went out, looked at the site, and then they realized, yes, she's right. It is a cemetery. They modified the uh, they modified the plans. And now these two cemeteries are on local county maps to show that they exist because they didn't because our society decided they weren't important enough to put on a map. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, all across the United States, you'll find African-American cemeteries or you'll find Native American burial grounds in, in, in others that are not on maps because someone in the local government years ago decided it was not important and they didn't mark them there. And now that everyone who knew the story is gone um, and there's no above ground references, which is part of the problem with now with Greenlawn is mm-hmm. all the above ground references are gone. And there are people in this city, both in and outside of, of Indianapolis city government who did not either know Greenlawn existed mm-hmm. or didn't know that everyone was moved until this thing kicked off. Last year, I think in, in uh, February when it first got mm-hmm. announced and some of us started talking about it, we actually had people look it up with their mouth hanging open. What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Judith, when she first started, didn't know all the details, but she was like, no, no, you know, no one told us about that. We thought there were just a few. And now, you know, you're sitting here telling us about hundreds and we're like, oh, no, this is going to be a mess. And then that's when she started actually trying to talk to people and bring them to the table. Like, no, 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 you need to come in and sit down and talk and listen. Mm-hmm. You need to, you know, help us decide. This is not what you think it is. Yeah. Because had she not done that, trust me, there are people who were well on their way to building this development that had no idea it was as convoluted as it, it's turning out to be. Well, and see, and to Leon's point, you know, I, I've been deputy mayor for three years now, and boy, I could write a book. But on on right, this, so right one. <laughs> <laughs> but on, the, I mean, I am. I, I have to say, I'm truly honored to have even been asked to be in this position, and the fact that Mayor Hawks had asked me to be in the position, and for the past three years, I, along with others, have been that voice to say, mm, we might want to step back and look at this, or people even within. I'll be honest, Brandon Herget, who's the uh, Director of Department of Public Works is the one that came to me and said, we need you because we know that you're passionate about history. Well, one, I'm passionate about Black people and the history of Black people. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Black female and I'm deputy mayor and I'm in a position that can ask questions and say, well, wait a minute, let's step back and figure out how we can make this better. I right. went through something similar with the neighborhood of Norwood um, when when the city was going to build uh, something on a historic farm from John Wesley Hardwick, this amazing painter from Indianapolis, black man, that we didn't know it was his family farm until people point the community uh, and an artist, Kayla Austin and other folks came to us and said, hey, do you know who lived here? He's got paintings at the Smithsonian. He's got paintings at our new fields. And so we had a community organization uh, meeting and said, yeah, now we're not going to build here. I mean, you can fight City Hall because City Hall also lives in the city and we want to do the right things. At least this administration does. And so now, again, like I said, I've been privileged to be in this position. And yes, DPW actually brought me on because DPW does not report to me. Uh, I just work closely with just about every department because neighborhoods reach every department and every department reaches every neighborhood. So where there needs to be communication, I'm again, privileged to be there to bring people together, bring folks to the table and really have real conversations so that 
those instances that Leon just brought up. And I'm even, there's one in Sugarland, Texas. I read about the New York times not too long ago. We're just sitting there and nobody's doing anything. And so for me, whether we find one God bless soul or none or thousands, no matter what, to me, this is an opportunity to tell the story of Indianapolis, black Indianapolis, native American, Indianapolis, white Indianapolis, there's also a story within our ethnic groups in this city uh, in relation to the Ku Klux Klan and why, 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 you know, where I'm originally from, the northwest part of Indiana and Gary and in Chicago and in Chicago being so ethnically diverse and celebrating those neighborhoods and different groups with bakeries and all that. We didn't necessarily have that in Indianapolis. And I'm sure there's a deep reason for that. We can discuss that on another radio show. But but to me, this is an opportunity to tell a story. And if we are indeed near the segregated area where we are building and we're finding people that may be African-American and we have actual history and records of po- folks that were buried there, we're going to find some stories. And where are we lacking in the city of Indianapolis from heritage and cultural uh, perspective where we need to grow? And to me, to acknowledge these folks, the cultural trail will, will go through this area Imagine the stories we can tell on the cultural trail. We've got digital now. We've got art we can do, public art. We've got um, major art pieces we might be able to put there to celebrate. What what event can we do every year to acknowledge the folks that were here and help Indianapolis build a foundation in so many ways, but yet honor them at the same time? That's what we need to really look at doing in the future, but also making sure we're doing the right things as we develop this project. You you must be my sister from another mother. I'm all about black folks and telling them stories. You mm-hmm. brought up something that I was just getting ready to ask either you or um, uh, Leon. And then I want to talk about something that's going on here in Bloomington. You mentioned Norwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, found out a little bit more about Norwood about a year ago. And boy, was I surprised about amazing. stuff. It's amazing. Uh, one, that my ancestors fought in the Civil War, came back, Parhams, and helped create Norwood. I did not know that. Wow. So I'm wondering if they are buried in Green Line. Since I didn't know about these ancestors until a cousin, I saw her on television, on the news, I go, (laughs) hey, wait a minute. (laughs) I know her. That's my family. So you think any of them were buried in Green Line? And then you mentioned uh, genealogy, or is anybody... Mm -hmm. Testing anything or? Yeah, that's, and I'll let Leon answer. Yes, we have those archaeologists from IUPUI, specifically uh, Dr. Jeremy Wilson, who I believe also worked on the Tulsa Street or or Tulsa um, Tulsa uh, cemeteries and and, and, um, that history. So, yes, that's going to be the next thing. I mean, we're going to find out, you know, if they were black, female. I don't think we're going to go into DNA and finding all that. You know, that that takes a lot of money, but uh, we're going to at least know you know, age, things like that. Basically. Okay. And that's I volunteer my DNA. I want to know if my folks are there. (laughs) Well, well, see the Norwood, you know, again, I was pulled into that and I can't remember if it was 21 or 22. I think it was 22. uh, When we were talking with the neighborhood and now we're actually as a city sitting down to figure out, okay, how can we uh, create spaces to tell the Norwood story in Norwood? So people can come to Norwood. I mean, they didn't get paved streets in 1971. These are folks that created their own libraries, their own schools, their own churches. They, they were the descendants of these men that fought are still there in those neighborhoods. There are women that are 90, 100 years old 
pulling out uniforms from the Civil War and photos, and they do not trust institutions to keep this. So how can we develop maybe a community center or park in a way that we can tell the story either digitally, visually, somehow, so folks can know this and walk away with some pride, knowing that there were people that fought in every single war in this country that were Black, but specifically in Norwood, that they came back and settled. And a lot of Black people from Indianapolis, I'm not from here, I'm from Gary. Now, I know my folks came up from the Northern Migration, <laughs> from Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas. But the folks that settled in Norwood, there are so many Black people from here that have no idea that their folks, my husband found out his aunt owned a, a bar or a restaurant or something there. He had no idea, didn't even know where it was. So, yeah. which has inspired me. And I was going over my my family photos my great grandfather from 1874, the born in 1874 that I knew in Gary. And I started looking at the photos going, where are these folks buried? And yeah. as I always tell young folks, when I get in front of them, find out your history, who you come from. You're here because of these folks. They laid the foundation. You'll find a story that of preservation, preservation, perseverance and preservation that made you who you are. And you don't even know you came from that. So my goal this summer is to go to Gary and find everybody that I know where they are so I can document it. So my granddaughter in 30, 40 years, when she starts wondering who and where she comes from, but she'll always know that because I tell her every day that she'll know where to find them, who they are and where they're buried. And that's what we as a people have to demand from ourselves and from other people that have to help us along in this journey. We tell the young people in our family, Judah, when you date somebody, find out who their peoples be. They might be find your out, peoples. Find out because we, you know, you you bring somebody to our reunion. Who are your peoples? Yes, <laughs> your peoples might be our peoples. You exactly. might be taking your cousin. Yep. What's going on here in Bloomington? Just recently, I'm trying to get markers put around Bloomington to establish these significant sites for African American history, gentrification, mm -hmm. gentrification. <laughs> our black neighborhood. Just yeah. about gone. So yeah. and that history is gone. People who were so popular back in the 1800s, how could you ever forget their name? Indianapolis mm -hmm. had Madam C.J. Walker. We had our own Madam C.J. Walker. I bet. Exactly. Right here. One of the wealthiest black women in Monroe County. Popular in the newspaper every day. Nobody knows. I was just talking about her today. I gave a, a black history talk this morning. Nobody knew that name. Wow. This headstone over there in the cemetery. Nobody knew. You know, here today, gone tomorrow. So yeah. we need we need to save it. So gotta keep it going. We had four black communities similar to Norwood. Four in Monroe County. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. So I want to put markers or something to acknowledge that yes, those people were there. Because what happens is, like with Indiana Avenue, we were never there. Yeah, we were. Yeah, and it's sad and and it's painful. And, and it's, it gets even worse than that. Judith and I had this discussion before, but if you go around Indianapolis, the only statuary of an African-American is that on the west face of the monument circle. And it is a seated African-American reaching up to a lady victory, if you will, with a broken manacle on one hand, one arm. Now there are several statues on that monument, on Monument mm -hmm. Circle, but there is only one African American, and he's chained. Yeah. Um, 
And that's the only one in this entire city of Indianapolis is that one statue down there. And mm-hmm. most people don't know it exists. And when I tell people that, they say, no, that's not true. And yes, it is going to the West Side. <laughs> and then they ask me, how did you know that when they go see it and come back? to me, How did you know that? Because for three years, I stood in front of J.C. Penney on Monument Circle. And I looked up at that monument on that West Side. And mm-hmm. I noticed that seated figure. I did not know his story, but I noticed it. So I tell that to say that about 12 years or so ago, there was this push to put up a work of art by an African-American artist named Fred Wilson here in Indianapolis. And they, he called it E Pluribus Unum. And it was a take from that particular statue. And a former deputy mayor of Indianapolis said in front of a crowd at the Walker Center and Walker Building, excuse me, in that theater. And it was a mixed crowd in that theater. He said there was no one other than Madam C.J. Walker worthy of putting up a historical or a a, a monument, a, a statue to in Indianapolis history, other than Madam Walker. And he said it with a straight face. I mean, I think he really believed what he was saying. That's kind of what myself, Judah, and some others are pushing back against Kayla Austin at Norwood. It's like, no, there are these stories. They are fascinating. They are just almost unbelievable stories of African-Americans in Indianapolis and central Indiana that no one's ever heard of. And Mm -hmm. that there is no excuse for not knowing these stories. And it's not about woke history as many uh, on the right scream and holler about. It's actually about knowing factual history. Exactly. Who was here and who did what? Mm -hmm. Well, we we have with nine minutes left. And I had every effort, I had every desire to do this a little earlier, but for those who just turned in and you're riveted in your seat and you, your jaw is open, go ahead and close your jaw. Uh, we are having a conversation with Leon Bates, who's more than a local Indianapolis historian. It's very obvious he's a national historian. And Judah Thomas, who's worth her weight in gold, is Deputy Mayor of Neighborhood Engagement for the City of Indianapolis. For They're on here to shedding light upon the City of Indianapolis's development and preservation plans on the side of the old segregated Green Lawn Cemetery, where the old diamond chain building once stood. And according to city death records, scores of human remains, several of which, significant number of which are African-American, have been found. Leon, you began a conversation on on the concept of revisionist history. And that is doing more to destroy our legacy than incarcerating a ton of black males. Uh, If if you could change our narrative, our Hmm. history, then maybe perhaps in one century... Oh, there are black people in America. Can either of you talk a little bit more about efforts? Uh, I know Florida is way ahead of the game and it's very obvious what the plan is, but it's your good efforts that are preserving history. And Liz, is, I, I dare not go further by saying my own co-anchor. Um, you all have celebrated. Um, you both are doing what I think is the intelligent thing with commemorative markers strategically placed. But can you tell us other enlightening things that we don't know about oh man wow where we yeah, Leon, you want to go first and, and we I have mean, we have seven minutes so. <laughs> well, well just and again i'll just say again being in this position that i'm in i, I really want to get people in the room to start talking about what does that future look like right you know i was uh for a brief time president of the Madam Walker Legacy Center and uh, the lead on Indiana Avenue, which they kind of, uh, that was kind of unofficial. 
But when I when I found that out, I remember saying, heck, I want to be the person that's just leading Indiana Avenue, period. How can we make some change and how can we uh, get it to where it needs to be? Not what it was, but what the future is. So I think there are plans with that. The, the city has a cultural equity plan that we're looking at. We also have one very focused on Indiana Avenue so that we're intentional about, OK, if somebody's developing, OK, what are you developing and how are you developing it and who are you including? And there's so many opportunities now. We have so many progressive Black people in the city of Indianapolis doing amazing work that need to be at the table. Because in the past, let's admit, only a couple of us were at the table, one, two at a time. But there are right. a lot of people, a lot of great ideas. Uh, I was trying to create, I, when I left the Walker, I was doing my own consulting, and I was looking to create an uh, African-American historical trail, a virtual trail in the city of Indianapolis. Just simply digitally connecting the historical markers uh, buildings that don't exist anymore with technology where you could stand and see the old Lincoln hospital. Was that what it was called? Leon Lincoln hospital. That's one, Senate. Of, them. That's one yeah. of them. Yeah. So, yeah. And be able to see that and see maybe the photos while you're walking. We have the young man, um, uh, Livingston, Samson Livingston that takes folks on walking tours, but he yeah. holds up photos. Imagine if there was an actual digital trail that people could pull up on their phones and get it done. And there are people working on that too. Kayla yeah. Austin, Denicia, um, Alone. So there, it, it, it's what we need is a cultural and heritage organization to organize all this, to make sure that everyone's working together through the Arts Council, through Herod, uh, uh, Indiana uh, his, uh, Historical Society. There's just so much more work that needs to be done. Oh, Lord, it is. And it's making me tired already. <laughs> I know. I wish I was 10 years younger, but I'm not. I'll so. take 20 years younger. <laughs> I'll take five. <laughs> okay. Well, Leon, Leon, um, share a little bit, you know, piggyback on what she just said. Um, wow. I think Judith pretty much has hit all the high points. Um, I'm going to take it right now. I don't need any more years. I I got enough in me, you know, to keep it stirred up. I'll do my best to, you know, try to be nice and, and, and try to, I'm always factual, but it's good that Judith is at the table and talking to people because I know I can irritate the hell out of a lot of them. And it takes someone like her to, to calm them down and say, wait a minute, hold it. You know, there is rational rationality in what he's saying and what others are saying. There's just no excuse to be this ill-informed about who, and when I say who, I don't mean just African-Americans, who we are in this city, who we are in this mm -hmm. state. A year or so ago, there was a push to... um I can't remember how it was working, but they wanted to recognize James Hoosier. You know, we got the name, you know, everyone's a Hoosier from this gentleman who was a itinerant Methodist minister and he was illiterate, but still he was an itinerant Methodist minister that went around African-American who preached the gospel and was very successful. And they wanted to make him basically a hero of Indiana, but here's the clincher. Hoosier never lived or preached in Indiana. But we have others who've lived here, who've done things that are not being recognized, not being mm -hmm. talked about. Most of us probably have heard of uh, Dred Scott, the Dred Scott decision, 1857. Yeah. yeah. Most of us have not heard that in 1854, there was another federal court case about slavery in Indianapolis for John Freeman. And Freeman won his case. Now, mm -hmm. he won it because a group of Prominent whites rallied to his defense and they helped him. He won his case. He eventually became fearful that the North would lose the war, went to Canada, 
comes back from Canada, becomes part of the ex-Industrial movement, and then becomes a successful resident of Topeka, Kansas, and spends the rest of his life there, and becomes a fairly wealthy man before he dies. But if I say John Freeman, people look at me no, like, who no. are you talking about? No. How is it we don't know John Freeman's story, but we know Dred Scott? No. This you, is what happens when the wrong people start trying to tell the history. Right. Someone got infatuated with that story and wanted it told. And when we talk about the story of John Freeman and his struggles, mm-hmm. um, they're not interested because it doesn't fit their narrative. Right. I'm, I'm going to have to, unfortunately, uh, time has caught up with us. And, you know, what a springboard for our next interview together. So I'll just throw <laughs> that out there now. Uh, but we do want to thank Leon Bates, local Indianapolis national historian, uh, and Judith Thomas, Deputy Mayor of Neighborhood Engagement for the City of Indianapolis, for joining us to shed light upon the City of Indianapolis's development and preservation plans on the side of the old segregated Green Lawn Cemetery, where, according to city death records, scores of human remains, a significant number of which are African Americans, and pointed out earlier, much earlier, uh, this at one time was the largest black cemetery in Indiana. Um, Greenlawn was. They're here. They shed light on this, and we just thank them. Bring well, it on. Has a, <laughs> thank you, too. Bring it on has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure that we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address again is bring it on at wfhb.org. And our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, and our assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Our thanks to Arika Heron of Axios for the background information on tonight's story. Our consultant WFHB News Department Director is Kate Young, and our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.